Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your comrade in literature, your ear lover, your companion through the Victorian era, and you are my Christmas buddy, because uh, Christmas has come here to the wilds of Connecticut. I record this on the weekend before Christmas. And as a Jew, I have never particularly, I shouldn't say that. When I was a kid, I liked Christmas uh, because I liked getting things. And even though we were Jewish, uh, we weren't good Jews. And so, you know, I think just cult, there was cultural pressure to give presents on Christmas. And we, we, we got presence. But as an adult, I have come to loathe this holiday because it's, it's just an orgy of consumerism. And I have no problem with consumption, either the act of consuming or the disease. But there is this intense weight on everybody's shoulders to, to get everybody the perfect gift. And there is no perfect gift. The perfect gift is you hang out, you eat cookies, maybe there's a ham. That's the perfect gift. Hanging out. And a Tesla. But this Christmas, I guess I have much to celebrate and be thankful for. I have a family. I have my health. I have this podcast, which I love doing for you guys, with you guys, I should say, because let's, let's face it, we're doing it together, except for the fact that I'm doing everything. And the thing about Christmas, of course, that ties directly to our book, Jude the Obscure, and directly to the moment we find ourselves in within Jude the Obscure, is that when last we left... Jude and Sue were kind of having a conversation 
a, a fraught, tense conversation about what Sue calls uh, the negation of civilization in describing herself. And what she meant, I think, is that she believes that she doesn't fit in to whatever passes in her mind as civilization. And so she has rejected it and she has rejected religion and she has even rejected the new consumerist age. And Jude is a creature of civilization and aspires to belong to a higher civilization, an academic civilization, a civilization of the elites where people nod to each other and say, "Good good morning. And then the other guy says, good morning. And then they say, would you like to talk about Cicero? And then, and then the other fellow says, I would. And then they talk about Cicero and then they die. But that's the kind of life that, to which he aspires. And so they're, they're, they're striving for almost opposite things. Her for the earth, Jude for the heavens. And in between is their relationship. In between is their blood, actually. And all that is tied up within it. And so... Jude has been saying, look, I, I, this, time, this is the time of day where I pray. I'm going to pray. And she's like, oh, God, you're such a nerd. And he's like, just don't be a dick about it. I'm just going to pray. And she's like, all right, yeah, whatever. And he's like, will you join me? She's like, uh, as if. And he's like, oh, well, you know, just all right, then, then chill out and I'm going to do it. And, and he says, you sure you won't join me? And she says, I'll look at you. And she, he goes, no, don't tease Sue. Well, she is a tease in more ways than one, Jude. And she says, very well, I'll just do as you bid me, and I won't vex you, Jude, she replied, in the tone of a child who was going to be good forever after, <laughs> turning her back upon him accordingly. A small Bible, other than the one he was using, lay near her, and during his retreat, she took it up and turned over the leaves. Jude, she said brightly, when he had finished and come back to her, will you let me make you a new New Testament, like the one I made for myself at Christminster? Oh, yes. How was that made? I altered my old one by cutting up all the epistles and gospels into separate brochures. And then brochures in the book is italicized and there's a little footnote. So I'm guessing it doesn't mean what you and I think of when we think of brochures. Let's go to the footnote. Sue... Okay, so it says Sue was being very bright and modern in carrying out this little exercise based on the results of current biblical scholarship. Jude was not quite so up to date. Oh my. So Jude, the theological student, doesn't know about making brochures. And Sue, who I guess spends a lot of time at Michael's Crafts, knows everything. I mean, maybe she's got pipe cleaners and little googly eye stickers. Even more daring, perhaps, to notice that the Song of Solomon was a collection of love poems. But Sue's education apparently did not go so far as to tell her that the interpretation of the book as having a bearing on the relations of God with the church or the individual soul had a history almost as long as the church or that dual or triple or quadruple interpretations of this kind are not peculiar to biblical exegesis. I, I, I don't even know what any of that means. All I heard was brochure and I got excited. Because I think about like um, when you go to the Motel 6 and they've got brochures for water parks and you pick one up and you're like, oh, we should go to the water park. And so I thought Sue was going to make, you know, like a water park brochure where, where he could get excited about the Bible. Anyway, 
So she goes, I'm going to make brochure and rearranging them in chronological order as written, beginning the book with Thessalonians following on with the epistles and putting the gospels much further on. Then I had the volume rebound. My university friend, Mr. Dash, uh, but never mind his name, poor boy, said it was an excellent idea. I know that reading it afterwards made it twice as interesting as before and twice as understandable. Hmm, said Jude, with a sense of sacrilege. And what a literary enormity this is, she said, as she glanced into the pages of Solomon's song. I mean the synopsis at the head of each chapter, explaining away the real nature of that rhapsody. You needn't be alarmed. Nobody claims inspiration for the chapter headings. Indeed, many divines treat them with contempt. It seems the drollest thing to think of the four and twenty elders or bishops or whatever number they were sitting with long faces and writing down such stuff. Jude looked pained. You are quite Voltarian, he murmured. Indeed, then I won't say any more, except that people have no right to falsify the Bible. I hate such humbug as could attempt to plaster over with ecclesiastical abstractions such ecstatic, natural, human love as lies in that great and passionate song. Her speech had grown spirited and almost petulant at his rebuke and her eyes moist. I wish I had a friend here to support me, but nobody is ever on my side. But my dear Sue, my very dear Sue, I'm not against you, he said, taking her hand and surprised at her introducing personal feeling into mere argument. Yes, you are. Yes, you are, she cried, turning away her face that he might not see her brimming eyes. You are on the side of the people in the training school. At least you seem almost to be. What I insist on is that to explain such verses as this, Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? By the note, the church professeth her faith is supremely ridiculous. Okay, so I'll just interrupt myself because I'm getting I'm getting winded and carried away here. Because I, I, you know, I've really swung. My pendulum has swung fully over to Sue fully and completely over to Sue. I don't like her tactics a lot of the times, but I feel like I understand her in a deep way, in a deep and resonant way that I never did with Jude. Like, I understand Jude from a kind of, uh, I don't know, character point of view, right? Like, Jude is simple. Dumb almost. Jude is just like, I'm a poor boy and I want to get educated and I want to make my way in the city and I want to get a briefcase and a three-piece suit and I want a fancy office and I want a house in the suburbs and a Volvo station wagon. Jude is simple. Jude is a happy participant in a game to which he has not been invited to play. And that ultimately is his problem, is that he was not invited to play this game. The game is, I don't know, for lack of a better word, ascendant capitalism or nascent capitalism. It is the rise of the modern age, and Jude desperately wants to be a part of it. And his way in is through education. His way in is through studying 
the way that people from the earlier age studied. So he is also a man out of time, but he doesn't know it. Sue is a woman out of time and is fully cognizant of it. And she looks back at the Song of Solomon, for example, and she says, God, this shit's beautiful. And then you've got these old dudes going, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's dry and it's brittle and it's boring and it's old. And you're not allowed to have the kinds of feelings and sentiments that you, Sue Bridehead, have when you read words like, whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Where are you? Hey, did you happen to see the most beautiful girl in the world? And if you did, was she crying? Crying. Hey, ah, did you happen to see the most beautiful girl? And here's the heartbreaker that walked out on me. And if you did, uh, and he says something like, and he says, tell her I love her, basically. Anyway, but that's, it's, that song is basically Song of Solomon, right? Same thing. Okay, let's take a break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you're a parent, maybe you're thinking of becoming one, or you just want to laugh at two new parents, here's a podcast from you from our friends at Stitcher. It's called Josie and Johnny Are Having a Baby With You. The show follows comedians Josie Long and Johnny Donahoe through their not totally planned pregnancy as they try to prepare for the birth of their first child. In each episode, they sit down with actors, writers, and entertainers who are also parents to help them figure things out. People like John Hodgman, uh, Jane Marie, Eugene Merman, and Rachel Sklar. Listen and subscribe to Josie and Johnny are having a baby with you in your podcast app right now. Hello, we're back, and when we left off, Jew and Jew, come on, Michael, it's Jude. Don't fall into Hardy's thing of being an anti-Semite. 
just say his name, Jude. Jude and Sue were having a little spat. It was a philosophical spat, and it has been going and going. And she said, they're like two rams butting heads. And he says, well, then let it be. You make such a personal matter of everything. I am only too inclined just now to apply the words profanely. You know you are fairest among women to me come to that. Oh, oh, Jude, that was very forthright of you. And she says, but you are not to say it now, Sue replied, her voice changing to its softest note of severity. Then their eyes met and they shook hands <laughs> like cronies in a tavern. Well, you're the fairest among women to me, but you are not to say that now. Now let us shake. I am shaking your hand and I am shaking your hand. God, these people. So they shook hands like cronies in a tavern and Jude saw the absurdity of quarreling on such a hypothetical subject and she the silliness of crying about what was written in an old book like the Bible and we know none of it's hypothetical. We know these words are not just in an old book. They're the eternal words. I don't mean that they're the word of God, but that the things they express are eternal. And look, Jude the Obscure, an old book, just like the Bible, maybe not quite as old, but also expressing some eternal truths. And she says, I won't disturb your convictions. I really won't. She went on soothingly. For now, he was rather more ruffled than she. But I did want and long to ennoble some man to high aims. And when I saw you and knew you wanted to be my comrade, I, shall I confess it, thought that man might be you. But you take so much tradition on trust that I don't know what to say. Well, dear, I suppose one must take some things on trust. Life isn't long enough to work out everything in Euclid problems before you believe it. I take Christianity. She goes, well, perhaps you might take something worse. And he goes, indeed, I might. Perhaps I have done so. He thought of Arabella. I won't ask what, because we are going to be very nice with each other, aren't we? And never, never vex each other anymore. She looked up trustfully, and her voice seemed trying to nestle in his breast. I shall always care for you, said Jude. And I for you, because you are single-hearted and forgiving to your faulty and tiresome little Sue. He looked away, for that epicene tenderness of hers was too harrowing. Was it that which had broken the heart of the poor leader writer? And was he to be the next one? But Sue was so dear. If he could only get over the sense of her sex as she seemed to be able to do so easily of his, what a comrade she would make. For their difference of opinion on conjectural subjects only drew them closer together on matters of daily human experience. She was nearer to him than any other woman he had ever met, and he could scarcely believe that time, creed, or absence would ever divide him from her. But his grief at her incredulities returned. 
They sat on till she fell asleep again, and he nodded in his chair likewise. Whenever he aroused himself, he turned her things and made up the fire anew. About six o'clock, he awoke completely, and lighting a candle, found that her clothes were dry. Her chair being a far more comfortable one than his, she still slept on inside his great coat, looking warm as a new bun and boyish as a Ganymede's. What's a Ganymede's? I know that I've seen that word, but what is that? What's a Ganymede's? This is also heartbreaking, isn't it, guys? I'm just looking up Ganymede's, but I'm just, my heart is broken by these two. I didn't expect to feel things. That's not what I got into reading for. A handsome Trojan prince who was carried off to heaven by Zeus in the shape of an eagle, where he was appointed as cupbearer of the gods. Does that mean she's going to die? Probably. Looking warm as a new bun and boyish as a Ganymede's. But why not just say Ganymede's? It's one, a, it's only one person. So why wouldn't you just say boyish as Ganymedes instead of as a Ganymedes? It doesn't matter, I guess, but just from a, from a writing point of view, it just seems like there's only one of them. So why not just say that one? Placing the garments by her and touching her on the shoulder, he went downstairs and washed himself by starlight in the yard. That's the end of chapter four, but let's just reflect a little bit. I mean, this has been such a big chapter, you guys. Such a big chapter here in Melchester. Melchester. And, uh, you know, it's just going to take me a little bit to recover here because they're young, you know? They're both young adults. They're in their early 20s and they're feeling things keenly. They're just in the loamy part of life, that rich and fertile part of life when you're looking for answers, you're looking to understand, and you're doing everything you can to figure shit out. And Jude's been trying for a long time in different ways. He's been studying, but now he's realizing perhaps his studies have come up short because he doesn't understand her. And she thought that maybe she had found, like she, as she said, a comrade, somebody that she could stir and bring over to her point of view. But she sees now that it's pointless, that Jude is too trusting. And he puts his trust in Christianity and it breaks her heart a little bit, right? She's going, she's going, dude, like we could have been something here. I love you, dude, but we... I can't, I can't get with you because you're too traditional. You're too hidebound. You can't see past the nose on your own stupid face. And Jude is basically going, yeah, I like the nose on my face. And Sue's like, but there's so many other, there's so much beyond your nose. And some of it you can't even see, but it's there and you just have to trust. And he's like, nope, 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 nope. At the end of this chapter, she's like, fuck it. Like, we'll be buds, but that's all we can ever be. She needs something more. She's not going to get it from Phyllison. She's not going to get it from Jude. She's not going to get it from the Bible. She's not going to get it from uh, any of the dudes wandering around Melchester, Melchester or Christminster. She, she, needs, she needs a savage. 
right? She needs somebody untamed. She needs like uh, in Game of Thrones, she just needs to become Dothraki. She needs to become Mother of Dragons. That's who she was meant to be, but she can't. But that's who she is, really. She's the Mother of Dragons. Okay, let's, uh, let's start Chapter 5. But before we do that, let's pay some of that bills. Let's get some of that money, honey. Oh, okay, here we are. Chapter 5. When he returned, she was dressed as usual. Now can I get out without anybody seeing me, she asked. The town is not yet astir, but you have had no breakfast. Oh, I don't want any. I fear I ought not to have run away from that school. Things seem so different in the cold light of morning, don't they? What Mr. Phillotson will say, I don't know. It was quite by his wish that I went there. He's the only man in the world for whom I have any respect or fear. I hope he'll forgive me, but he'll scold me dreadfully, I expect. I'll go to him and explain, began Jude. Oh, no, you shan't. I don't care for him. He may think what he likes. I shall do just as I choose. Well, now she's contradicting herself one and and two sentences. And this is her care. And this is this is the vexing part of Sue's character, right? Oh, he's the only one I respect and fear. Well, I'll go and explain. Oh, don't worry about that. I shall do just as I choose. But you just this moment said, well, if I did, I shall do as I'd like for all him. I have thought of what I shall do. Go to the sister of one of my fellow students in the training school who has asked me to visit her. She has a school near Shaston, about 18 miles from here, and I shall stay there till this has blown over and I get back to the training school again. At the last moment, he persuaded her to let him make her a cup of coffee in a portable apparatus he kept in his room for use on rising to go to his work every day before the household was stir. Now a do bit to eat with it, he said, and off we go. You can have a regular breakfast when you get there. They went quietly out of the house, Jude accompanying her to the station. As they departed along the street, a head was thrust uh, out of an upper window of his lodging and quickly withdrawn. Uh-oh, somebody's seeing those nosy neighbors. Sue still seemed sorry for her rashness and to wish she had not rebelled, telling him at parting that she would let him know as soon as she got readmitted to the training school. They stood rather miserably together on the platform, and it was apparent that he wanted to say more. I want to tell you something. Two things, he said hurriedly as the train came up. One is a warm one, the other a cold one. Jude, she said, I know one of them and you mustn't. What? You mustn't love me. You are to like me, that's all. Jude's face became so full of complicated glooms that hers was agitated in sympathy as she bade him adieu through the carriage window. And then the train moved on, and waving her pretty hand to him, she vanished away. Well, that is heartbreaking. Don't love me, she said. You can't, you mustn't. But if that conversation had gone differently the night before, if she had been able to persuade him to see beyond that little foully nose of his, perhaps she would have said, yes, you may love me, 
because I see you for who you are. I see underneath that bushy stonemason's beard of yours right into that giant galloping heart that is pounding in your chest. And I know what lies within it. And Jude is saying to her last night, forget my heart. Think about my brain. Think about my faith and my soul. And she's saying, none of that means shit to me. And if I can't love your heart and what is within it, I don't want to love any of it. And good for her. For reals. Good for her. Maybe she'll go to Australia and she and Arabella can kind of pal around together. I mean, in a way, in a way, they'd be good together. Arabella is a lot like Sue in certain respects. She does what she wants. She doesn't give a shit what people think. And yeah, she's horrible because she has no moral center, but she is kind of living her own truth. She's just kind of like, yeah, man, whatever feels good, you know, whatever gets you through the night. And Sue is kind of, you know, approaching life in a similar manner, but she's too good. So if they were to hang out, what a buddy comedy that would make. Arabella and Sue Bridehead, like doing like a bridesmaid type comedy. Arabella is like, you know, she meets, I don't know, a guitarist on the street and they hook up and then... You know, it turns out he's part of a drug cartel and she, she becomes a mule for this cartel and Sue has to get her out before the cops find the 20 pounds of yayo stuffed up her coo, stuffed up her cooch. This could be the beginning of a great movie. And Sue's like, but Arabella, why are you stuffing yayo up there? And she's like, I wanted the money. I'll be just a, a tiny bit more. Melchester, Melchester was a dismal place enough for Jude that Sunday of her departure and the close so hateful that he did not go once to the cathedral services. The next morning, there came a letter from her, which with her usual promptitude, she had written directly when she had written directly, she had reached her friend's house. She told him of her safe arrival and comfortable quarters and then added, What I really write about, dear Jude, is something I said to you at parting. You had been so very good and kind to me that when you were out of sight, I felt what a cruel and ungrateful woman I was to say it and has reproached me ever since. If you want to love me, Jude, you may. I don't mind at all, and I'll never say again that you mustn't. Now, I won't write any more about that. You do forgive your thoughtless friend for her cruelty, and won't make her miserable by saying you don't ever sue. <sighs> sue, what are you doing? What are you doing, Sue? Five minutes ago, two minutes ago, I was giving you credit for knowing what you want and not compromising in knowing that Jude could never provide it. And I was giving you so many props for saying basically Jude, let it go, man. It would be superfluous to say what his answer was and how he thought what he would have done had he been free, which should have been rendered a long residence with a female friend quite unnecessary for Sue. He felt he might have been pretty sure of his own victory if it had come to a conflict between Phillotson and himself for the possession of her. Yet Jude was in danger of attaching more meaning to Sue's impulsive note than it really was intended to bear. 
After the lapse of a few days, he found himself hoping that she would write again, but he received no further communication. And in the intensity of his solicitude, he sent another note, suggesting that he should pay her a visit some Sunday, the distance being under 18 miles. He expected a reply on the second morning after dispatching his missive, but none came. The third morning arrived. The postman did not stop. This was Saturday. And in a feverish state of anxiety about her, he sent off three brief lines stating that he was coming the following day for he felt sure something had happened. God, Jude, you're such a wet noodle. You're such a wet noodle. Just, and, it's, and, and, and what's annoying is it's exactly how I would have behaved. It's exactly what I would have done. And it drives me crazy that I would have been Jude. And that's the thing. I mean, we, I, I can't help but draw parallels between myself and Jude and have throughout this entire book. That feeling of wanting to escape obscurity, that feeling of being a young man alone in the world, that feeling of, feel, uh, of being in love with somebody who can never love you back. And it's so frustrating. Oh, and the feeling of, of like coming from New Jersey and going to New York and thinking like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I belong here. I can make it here. I can make it anywhere. It's up to me, New York. And ending up, you know, essentially obscure again. Um, I, I, you know, I relate to Jude. And it's like, it's that embarrassing thing when you see characteristics of yourself in other people, you end up hating that person so much. That's basically where I am with Jude right now. And it's frustrating because it's not really Jude I hate, is it? Guys, you don't need to answer that. But we both, we both know. Anyway, it's been a fun episode. You know, there's a lot going down here. And it will come to a conflict at some point, whether it's between he and Sue or he and Sue and Phillotson or he and Sue and some other dude in Phillotson or the cook, the wife, the thief and her lover. Who knows? But a lot, there's just a lot of emotion and a lot of the world on both of their shoulders that loamy world we talked about and it's so heartrending and sad um but that's that's what we like here on obscure we like the tragic we like the big questions and the unsatisfying answers and of course we like sex and 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 there's been really little to none which may be also why it's a little frustrating but Again, reminds me of my own life. So, until next time, I bid you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. And be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. I was going to say a thrilling episode. But I'm, I'm humble. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show. And you would email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.
This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aquí Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nesea. Spanish Aquí Presents. <laughs>